Hey, good morning. You are going to want a Bible this morning as we do what we do, worship God together and open his word to see how it might shape and form our lives. So uh, go on and find a Bible. If you have a Bible and we have some people walking around, uh, that will just slip up a hand and they will get a Bible in your hand um, so you can follow along. So as John said, obviously we've been going through the book of Romans for the last uh, several months and... Uh, today, I'm actually, I'm going to deviate a little bit from our norm, and uh, in that I'm skipping ahead in Romans. Normally, going chapter by chapter, or section by section, but I just really felt um, God's kind of leading me into a different place for this week, and uh, in, his, in the timing of things. So, last week, we, we talked about God's purposes of election. And how election isn't about salvation, but about God using uh, people, whether they know him or not, to accomplish his plans and purposes. And this week, we are on the verge of a different kind of election. And so, with that, I actually want to go into Romans 13. One of the most controversial passages in the book of Romans. Romans being one of the hardest books in the Bible. So, let's have fun with that. Uh, and here's why, and I'll just be really honest, and I'm just going to try to walk us through some of this. I don't have time this morning to dig into like a really robust theology of church and state or Jesus and politics. Uh, in fact, if you know me, uh, I actually try to steer, steer very clear of, of politics, um, of the political spirit. And here's why. Because we belong to a different kingdom. And our allegiance, and this is my role as your pastor, is to get us to dig into the Bible and keep pointing you to Jesus. Because he is the only true king. And his kingdom, the kingdom of God, is the only unshakable kingdom. At the same time, we have to recognize that our world has been shaken and divided in painful ways over the last several years around areas and issues of politics. So the question then becomes, how as Jesus people do we think rightly about the role of government in the world and how do we live in a Jesus way in light of all the turmoil that surrounds us. And so here's what I'm going to ask you to do. We're going to get into Romans 13 a little bit. We're going to pull out some conclusions about ways of thinking about the world through the lens of Jesus and the kingdom of God. Also recognizing that I am not perfect. <laughs> and, uh, and way more, as I say every week, way more important than anything that I have to say is what God wants to speak to you through his word. So keep diving into the passage. And I may accidentally say a word that is a trigger word for you. As hard as I will try not to say it. And uh, it, because, here's why I try to avoid those words, is because you, certain words trigger us in a way that we don't hear anything else. And so I'm going to ask you to lean into the word, to bear with me as we dive into this passage, so that as followers of Jesus, we can live as salt and light in a world that desperately needs people of hope and peace and love. Amen? Are you with me on this journey? All right, let's do this. Well, let's do this first. Let's pray. Let's still our minds and our hearts. Let God give God his spirit room for all of us. So I just invite you just to close your eyes. Take a deep breath. And Lord, out loud, we recognize that you are as real and as present in this space as we are. God, we thank you for your Holy Spirit. That Jesus, you promised you would give as the counselor, the advocate, 
to remind us of the things that you taught, to teach us all things. And so right now, Lord, we submit to your Holy Spirit. God, we submit to your word. And so, Lord, will you shape our minds? Will you transform, renew our minds so that we can be molded more and more into the image of Christ? That we could reflect your goodness and your glory to this world. And we pray all of these things in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So here we go. Romans 13. I'm going to just read the first part of the passage, and then we'll kind of dive in a little bit. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you'll receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. So owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has, uh, sorry, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So this, this, this passage, and really that first verse, we want, to play, we want to place it rightly in Scripture. So that first verse, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. And here's why this verse has created so many controversies. Because there, on one hand, you could take that verse by itself and say, so that means we are to blindly submit to whoever is in political power or government authority or religious authority over me. Because that is the voice of God in my life. On the other hand, some have looked at that and said, well, surely Paul couldn't have written this. This doesn't make sense because we see from the example of Scripture and we see from, from the reality of history how this could not possibly be. So this must have been added in at some point after Paul wrote this letter to make people want to pay their taxes. But when we see it in the context where it finds itself in the, in the letter, it actually makes perfect sense. 
So think about the Romans having built up this, this, uh, this, ro- this theology around the centrality of the gospel of Jesus Christ, forming for himself a new people out of divided people who would have considered themselves enemies. And in this capital city of Rome, Paul wanting to launch out on mission to the rest of the world and in the process forming them into the kind of people that can rightly carry the gospel forward. And in that context... He builds up from Romans 1 through 11 to finally in Romans 12, and we'll come back to Romans 12 uh, here in a little while, not today, uh, but leading to. So therefore, do not be conformed to the patterns of this age or this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then you can test and approve God's will, that perfect and pleasing and good will. And so as he, he is setting them up as a, a different kind of people, he's saying, now let your thinking be changed in light of the reality of the gospel. Let your mind be, be formed by the image of Christ. And then from Romans 12, he continues on as he lists out the different ways that that different kind of thinking begins to play out in how we interact and live in the world. So practice hospitality. Bless those who curse you. Love. Give generously. Lead passionately. Hold fast to what is good. Don't seek vengeance, but trust God. And then verse 21. Do not over, be overcome by evil but overcome evil with good. And in that context, he then shifts to their reality, living in the power of Rome. What does it look like to be Jesus' people in the context of what could be considered, through a Christian lens, the most evil empire that they could possibly imagine? And he tells them, submit. Be subject to. Now, to understand that word, or to understand where we're going with this, we need to know that word. It's the word hypotasso. The first time it's used in the Gospels is actually in Luke 2.51, referring to Jesus submitting to his parents. That the Son of God, with all wisdom and power from heaven, submits to, his earthly, to the earthly authority of his family. It's mentioned in Ephesians 5, talking about wives and husbands submitting to one another. It means a proper positioning of yourself under God's authority and within his established order on earth. It's used in the middle voice, which in the Greek means that it implies a, a, a voluntary action. It's a lowering of oneself in order to lift up another. So why? Why here is he saying in the context of Rome and this empire in which you live, having a transformed mind that's not being conformed to the, to the powers of this age, why would you lower yourself in order to place yourself under the authority of this empire, of those who are in authority over you? Well, Paul recognizes, first, that authority comes from God. He says that there's no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. That government is not merely a human invention 
or necessity. But instead, it's there for a purpose, and it's there created by God. And this goes all the way back to Genesis, when God gave them the command to subdue, to have dominion, to be fruitful, to multiply, that God was putting into this world a created order in which humans were to live and to flourish. But then we also see, even as we looked at last week, how God uses even those that are anti-God to accomplish his purposes, that he actually is the one in control. And he goes on to say that in a rightly ordered, basically the, the, the role of government in our lives, or the role of authority, is to do good in the world, to accomplish God's plans. He continues on, rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. So you will not want to be afraid of authority? Then do what is good, and you'll have their approval. Which that makes sense, doesn't it? Have you ever been, uh, or I guess the way to word this question is, is for you the speed limit? <laughs> I didn't even have to ask the question. Is it a minimum or an average? That really... And we know that question by, have you ever gone around a curve or over a hill and seen that classic uh, uh, police car sitting on the side and all of a sudden you go into panic mode? Like Even if you're actually driving the, within the speed limit. Why? Well, because we know that there's this, this order in which we're supposed to obey and to live. We also know that we're always pressing against that, right? And that if we just do what is right, there's no reason to fear that, that police car sitting on the side of the road. So Paul writes, as God's servant for you, your good. This is why he says that, that we are to obey because of your conscience, to do what is right under those that are in authority. He continues on even. This is why you pay taxes. Because the authorities are God's servant. And they're continuing to the task of community, of taking care of God's people, even if they are not consciously obeying God. The reality is that in government and in politics, I have, my wife has worked in, in politics now for the last 10 years, or she's not a politician, but in government. And, and we tend to often focus on the controversial aspects of government, don't we? The things that we don't like or the things that we disagree on. But 95% of what government does, we actually like. Like, we like the roads that we drive on most of the time. We like services like 911. We appreciate zoning ordinances, though we don't always necessarily agree with every decision made. We appreciate international trade agreements and national defense. I mean, there's things that we say, it's like, thank you that we live in a country with a government that takes care of these needs that most of the time we don't even think about. And most of the people that are within that institution are actually working hard and doing their best. In fact, right now, I mean, there are some of you in here that, uh, that work within government. And that's everything from teachers to police officers to those that work in City Hall. That you are working for, you're a public servant working for the good of the people. And for that, I say, God bless you. Thank you. I know personally that it is often a thankless job and that more often than not you hear the complaints than you hear the compliments. So I just want you to know God sees you. God sees your faithfulness. God appreciates your work. And we bless you. In fact, Scripture commands us to pray for you. And so I would like to pause right now 
and obey what Scripture tells us to do is to, to pray for those who are in authority, even kings, and to bless. And to bless means this, to desire God's best for a person. Now, the reality is, is that there are some broken and evil people out there in the world. We also have to acknowledge that in some ways we are all broken and messed up, aren't we? And so oftentimes, God's best in a person's life requires repentance. It doesn't just mean I want, you know, rainbows and unicorns for you the rest of your life. No, I want you to come into alignment with God's heart for your life. That's what it means to bless somebody. So if you're willing right now, I would love to just pray for those that serve within our government. For those that have positions of power and influence. And for those that just show up in nameless, thankless jobs. Even our president. Whether you agree with him or not, voted for him or not. Whoever gets elected next on Tuesday. Whether you like it or not. Because we are Jesus people that belong to a different king. So if you're willing, let's just pray. In your own heart you can pray and I'll pray out loud for us. So Lord Jesus, we do pause right now and just obey what you told, what Paul wrote to Timothy. To pray for those who are in authority. To pray for kings and those in positions of power. And so Lord, we pray for our president. We pray for Biden. We pray for the Senate and the House. We pray for our Supreme Court justices. God, we pray at a state level for those who serve in the Capitol in Atlanta. God, we pray for all of those who serve in offices all over this nation and this state and this city. For those who have thankless jobs that no one even knows their name, but they show up and serve. God, we pray your presence in their lives. We pray for an awakening in their souls. God, we pray for a turning to you. We pray for divine wisdom from heaven to do what is right and what is good and what is true. We bless them. We bless them in their families, as husbands and wives, as mothers and fathers, as friends and neighbors. And we bless them as your children. Lord, we come under your authority first, so that we can rightly live in this world as salt and light. In the name of Jesus, amen. So what is Paul wanting us to do here? Well, in some ways, this is a carryover from at the end of chapter 2, Paul instructing them to leave vengeance to God. And so Paul is saying, as individuals, don't take vengeance into your own hands. But he's also recognizing that, that there are those in authorities, there are governments, that, that their role is to protect, to punish But Paul's command to the church is, as much as possible, this is in 1218, to live at peace with everyone. As much as you can, he's saying, live at peace with the government by honoring and obeying them from your heart wherever you can. Now, some, uh, a lot of theologians believe that Paul wrote this letter expecting it to end up on Caesar's desk. Or someone in his household. And we know that there were in the household of Caesar followers of Jesus. And so even as he's writing this letter, he's, he's making it clear what the intentions of the church are. And the intentions of the church aren't to overthrow the existing power structures. 
to raise up a different kind of earthly kingdom, but it is to but to, it is to advance to announce the arrival of the eternal heavenly kingdom of God. Now there were a lot of Jewish people in Paul's day that they believed the ultimate aim of God was to overthrow Rome in order to reinstitute a Jewish nation state that would rule over the rest of the nations. And the people that, that followed that way of thinking, and they got even to the, were called zealots. And the zealots were the ones that wanted to take political power out of Rome and put it in the hands of, of the Jewish priestly system. Because they believed that that was God's role for the Jewish people from the beginning. They missed the, the original covenant of Abraham that you will be blessed to be a blessing to the rest of the world. But instead it was about their power, their, uh, their influence, or, or them uh, being... The, the special ones of God. In fact, it got to the point that there were some zealots that were called Sicarii, and the Sicarii were actually assassins that would carry knives, and they went through a whole season that for decades, the Sicarii would, would roam the crowds and, and assassinate anyone that was in power within the Roman government system. It got so bad that eventually Rome will come in and totally wipe out Jerusalem and tear down the temple just as Jesus had predicted. We also know that these uprisings that were happening around uh, within that Jewish context trying to overthrow Rome had already caused all of the, the, the followers of Jesus and the Jews to be kicked out of Rome under the previous emperor. And in fact, part of the, the uh, motivation for the letter of Romans is that the Jews were just now getting to come back into Rome. So it makes sense that Paul would say, we want the gospel to go forward and to advance. So live at peace in a way that doesn't hinder the work of the gospel in this city. Live within the authority that has been set up. Our role is not to overthrow human governments. To influence, yes. To be salt and light, yes. To speak prophetically to rulers and those in authority. To rebuke unrighteousness and warn of judgment, absolutely. That's different than thinking that, that Christians are supposed to bring in God's rule for themselves. Instead of for the sake of others. So going back to Paul, Paul's saying that something of God's authority is at work within the governance of the state. And so we can be led to this question of how am I supposed to respect and honor a political leader when I don't approve of or endorse a lot of what they stand for? And here's what's hard when we study this letter from Paul. Paul would not have approved of or endorsed the vast majority of what the governing leaders of his day did. And had they had any such thing as free elections, he probably wouldn't have voted for any of them. So for just a minute, this is the context that Paul is writing this letter. The previous emperor... That, that ruled in Rome was a guy named Caligula. Here's a few of the things that Caligula did, some of his greatest accomplishments. 
He had his mother and his brother killed to make sure that they never challenged his right to the throne. He openly committed incest with three of his sisters. He frequently would cross-dress and go out in public. Sorry, I got my notes out of, out of place here. I know you want to know more about Caligula. <laughs> oh, here, oh, nope. Well, I can't find it. Well, that's weird. Maybe I'm not supposed to tell you about him. I will tell you, I do know this. Gosh, there's one more stat about Caligula. That's amazing. Oh, I know what it was. He tried to, like, when we talk about, like, wanting to uh, use your role in, in politics to put your friends in office, that can get people really fired up and angry. Caligula had a favorite pet horse that he tried to install as a senator. And he would have, except he was assassinated right before the vote was to come to power. Now, I don't know about you, but I've never met a horse that made a good political, well, actually, maybe they would make it better in some cases. <laughs> the reason he was assassinated is because Nero, another young up-and-coming leader's mom, wanted her little baby to be in power, so she had Caligula assassinated. Nero became Caesar, and so Nero is now governing when Paul's writing this letter. What we know about Nero is this, it is that he orchestrated the burning of Rome so that he could blame Christians, as generally understood. He then uh, launched a massive persecution against Christians. In fact, throwing a giant party once in one of his palaces where he used Christians as human torches to light up the courtyard. Okay, these are the people that are in power in Rome when Paul is writing, as for you, to, as best as you can, submit to those who are in authority. So we have to take a hard look when we get offended or don't like those who are in office and be like, well, that's, you know, I, I can't pray for that person or I disagree with that person or do you know what that person did? They're all a mess. We're all a mess and none of them are set up to be your savior. And if we're holding on to those that get elected to political office to be our security and safety in this world, we are holding on to a very shaky foundation. Because at some point, every empire crumbles. Every party gets overthrown. Every leader will die. We're humans. And every human system is flawed and failed. And that's why even especially in this time of turmoil in our country, Christians have an amazing opportunity to not jump in to all the craziness and silliness that says, if we get our way, if we hold on to power, or if we can overthrow some things, then we'll be okay. But to say, no, 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 no matter what happens out there, we're going to be okay. Because my faith and my trust is in something so much bigger and so much more eternal. And when the rest of the world is heaped up in anxiety and depression, which is off the charts right now, 
Christians can say, I stand with confidence because there's a God who calls me by name and is leading me home. I don't know if that was in my notes or not. So what do we do? Well, Paul makes it clear that we're not to owe anyone anything. All he's really doing is repeating what Jesus already said. Remember when the Pharisees were trying to trap Jesus and they were like, they held up a coin and they said, uh, is it okay to pay taxes to, to Caesar? And really they're trying to set him up because uh, if he says yes, then what he's doing is siding himself with the, the political oppressors of his day. If he says no, then he's marking himself as uh, someone trying to overthrow Rome and can get the wrath of the Roman government. And then Jesus being genius, being Jesus, uh, he, he was like, well, give me the coin. Whose image is on it? Well, Caesar's. All right, give to Caesar what's Caesar's. But then he makes this amazing statement. And give to God what is God's. And what is God's? Everything. Everything we are and everything that we have. And Paul is actually doing something incredibly subversive here, even with these, this verse. How? He's surrounded by Rome that worships Caesar as God. And what he is saying is, submit yourself to those in authority because they have been placed there by God. In other words, there's a bigger power out there. And it's not Caesar, and it's not Rome. And so he could stand from that position. Only God is the true king. And then it says, Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. Which creates a lot of questions. Does that mean that I'm never supposed to resist? Am I never meant to uh, oppose or to disagree? Well, no. That word for judgment is actually a different word uh, than the word... Uh, some of your Bibles actually have, may have even translated as condemnation, but it's actually a different word than in Romans 8.1 when it says, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Like, this word for judgment means that God rightfully judging. The other word for judgment or condemnation is judging and being executed for it. It's, it's the judgment and the punishment. And here what Paul is saying is, is that everyone who resists will be judged. So resist wisely. There's a long line of, uh, of resistance in the Bible that goes all the way back to Exodus chapter 1, where it said that the midwives feared God and did not do what the king commanded. Daniel 6 when the advisors come to the king and say, Daniel needs to be punishment because he shows no regard for you, O king, or your decree, but he keeps praying to his God. Even up to Acts chapter 4 and 5, where the authorities would bring, uh, had brought in Peter and had said, stop speaking this name of Jesus. And what does Peter and John say? 
Judge for yourselves. Actually, the same word there is judge in, in 13.2. Whether it is right in God's sight to listen to you or to listen to God. A chapter later, they're blatantly disobeying what the uh, authorities had told them. Quit speaking in the name of Jesus. They're still preaching the name of Jesus. They get brought back in. They're beaten. Stop speaking in the name of Jesus. Acts 5.29, but Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. And so what we see is that we recognize that we are to submit ourselves, to honor, to bless, to give what is owed to those in authority, but our highest authority, our highest allegiance, therefore our highest obedience is to God. And the call of God in obedience is ultimately where Paul goes next, to love. And love not being feelings of endearment, but sacrificial, humble, compassionate action. Or as Paul writes, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. And then he does this really interesting thing as he continues on. Living at peace, living submitted to those that are in authority, but recognizing that there's a higher authority, and that higher authority ultimately points us to, to humble, sacrificial action called love. But from 11 on, he actually gets really militant in his language. After talking about lower, or lowering ourselves to the, the governing authorities, and that they were, we're not trying to have an uprising that overthrows one political power with a different political power. But then verse 11, besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness, and here's the language, and put on the armor or the weapons of light. In other words, we are fighting a, different, a war, but it's a different kind of war. We're fighting a battle, but it's a different kind of battle, and we use different weapons, even as Paul will write in Corinthians. That we're not waging our war against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. Even in this language here about from, on verse 13, walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. It's not so much the behavior he's focused on, but he's giving a picture of like soldiers that are home on leave. And what are soldiers that are home on leave known for? Drinking, sex, and fighting. And he's telling you, you're a different kind of soldier. So put on a different kind of armor. Fight a different kind of battle. Wake up. Don't just blindly, passively go through this world. And that's not what he's saying even in verse 13. It's not a blind submission. It's not a voiceless role. But it's one under the authority of Jesus that is pointing towards love and is fighting a different kind of war. So how do we fight? 1 Corinthians 10.3 alluded to, For though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh, 
For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Ephesians 6 lays out what that, what those, uh, what that armor of God or those weapons of God are. And the first thing we fight with, as silly and at times as empty as it can feel, is actually the power of our prayers. And what the Bible makes really clear is that they aren't just empty words that we throw up to heaven, but is the power of God to change earthly reality, to transform the world that we live in. Revelation uses the picture that the prayers of the saints are like incense that goes up before God, and God captures that incense, and he throws it back down on earth, shaking the heavens and the earth. On Thursday, uh, a couple days ago, I had the, the privilege of getting to go up to Washington, D.C. for the day. And uh, our sister church up there, Grace Capital City, is in the middle of trying to acquire this old um, historic church right a few, a few blocks from uh, the White House, right in the middle of downtown Washington, D.C. They've been renting a building for the last six years and, and want to root themselves in that community. And so we got to, to walk around this church. It's actually pretty cool because it was actually Teddy Roosevelt's church when he was president. In some of the memoirs, he writes about walking home from church. And in fact, in one of his uh, letters, he talks about how uh, his, he and his wife went to two different churches. And, uh, and he said, the kids usually go with my wife to church, except when they misbehave, then they have to come with me. <laughs> but we went into this old church that's been sitting empty in the middle of Washington, D.C., and just simply to pray and worship together as all the lead pastors of the 10 different grace churches. And as we prayed, the church has pews and it has these kneeling benches and we just knelt. And, and as, as I was kneeling, the picture I had is, Lord, would you fill this place with your people? Some who know you and some who don't. But as they kneel in this place, will you turn their hearts towards you? And then it was this picture of a generation of Jesus followers Move towards repentance and transformation, then standing up and walking back out those doors into the Capitol building, into the White House, into the, the public policy uh, offices that are all around. And they got saturating our nation's capital with people that are humbly serving in a way that keeps pointing to Jesus for the sake of the gospel. That's how we engage. And we pray. And then we show up with compassionate action. The Christians were the ones who ended abortion in Rome. And you know how? Not by posters and marching in front of Caesar's palace. But by showing up on the trash heaps where babies were being thrown out and picking up those babies and taking them home with them. It was Christians who started the first orphanages. It was Christians who first showed up in the places of pain and brokenness and not demanding political action, but instead said, no, I will move with compassionate action in the name of Jesus. It was Christians that ended the slave trade. The first known uh, Nations or power that didn't trade in slaves was the, was the Holy Roman government, the early Catholic Church. 
because they recognized you can't have slaves if all men are created in the image of God. Up to that point, every other political power had traded in slaves except for Christians. Christians ended it. And then it still persisted, and so it was another, uh, what would that be, 1,400 years later, William Wilberforce and the Christians of England would end the slave trade there. It's Christians that show up, not by protesting, but by showing compassionate action. And then, three, we pray, we show up. And then there are times, even as Jesus modeled, for nonviolent resistance. Christians compelled by their action, moved, compelled by their convictions, moved to action, not simply outrage. Nonviolent resistance that is for the sake of another, to protect the vulnerable, not to preserve power or to protect myself. So what do we do this week? One advantage that we have that Paul and those in the church in Rome did not have is that we had the power to vote. We actually have a voice in our government system. So I encourage you, participate in our government. One way that we submit to authority is by following, uh, by, by entering in to our political system. I'm not going to tell you how to vote, but search your conscience, actually do some research, and then go vote. And then two, honor those who serve. Pray for them. Bless them. And on Wednesday morning when you wake up, no matter who won, let the first thing you do is get on your knees and pray for them, even if you didn't vote for them. Especially, I will say, for your own soul, if you didn't vote for them. Because if your preferred candidate loses, it's not the end of the world. But hear this. If your preferred candidate wins, it's not your salvation. And then search your heart. Is there any place of judgment, of unforgiveness, bitterness, cynicism, self-protection, greed, pride? Be honest with your fear and your anger. So much of what's happening in the world around us is driven by fear and anger. And on both sides of the aisle, whoever you want to vote for, whoever you're listening to, Fear and anger is one of the most reoccurring motivators for why to vote for me and why not to vote for the other person. We are not to be people driven by fear and anger. That is not who you are. But be honest with it. What am I afraid of? Who am I looking to to make me feel safe or to protect me from what I fear? Be honest with your anger. Recognize that anger is most often a surface emotion. So what is the feeling behind the anger? When you get fired up about something, frustrated, or want to throw a, you know, your phone at the TV, what is it you're really feeling? Out of control? Misunderstood? Vulnerable? Forgotten? Disrespected? Alone? Be honest with what you're afraid of. Be honest with what you fear. I mean, with what, you, what makes you angry. And go to the cross where we let those things die and we receive our true identity as adopted sons and daughters of the only true king. So participate. 
Honor and bless those who serve. Pray for them. Search your heart. And then lastly, look for ways to intentionally engage in compassionate action. What are the issues that stir you up the most? Is it abortion? How can you, this is the turn from Christians, is that we don't see just nameless masses or hopeless forces. We actually are empowered by God to go and engage in his name. And so if, if it's abortion that breaks your heart, then what does it look like to engage for the fatherless? What does it look like to engage for the vulnerable? How is God inviting you, not the big faceless out there them, you to actually step in and be the hands and the face and the feet of Jesus in those places? To see people as people. Even if they're on the different side of the aisle or holding up a different poster or standing under a different flag. Is it the economy? That's what really is stirring you up right now, or you're afraid of or angry about? Why? I'm afraid I'm not going to have enough. I'm afraid that what I have is going to be taken away. And what does Jesus tell us to do when money begins to control our thoughts and emotions? Be generous. Give it away. Anne Frank has this amazing quote. You know that little girl that in Nazi uh, Germany? No one has ever, no one has ever went, uh, no one has ever become poor by giving. Is it immigration? What would it look like to befriend the outsider? To put a face with an issue? Is it crime? What areas in our community don't feel safe? What does it look like to go there with the power and the grace of Jesus? How can you engage? Do we know our neighbors? I mean, the power of Christians is that we actually are filled by the Spirit of God to carry the power and the presence of God into the places of brokenness in our world. It's an incredible gift that we're given. We are not victims to the powers of this age. We belong to the one that reigns over everything in heaven and on earth. Amen? A few years ago, Christians got super upset about the whole idea that prayer was being taken out of school. The irony is, no one can take prayers out of school. And in fact, the best way for us to resist is not to get all angry and hopeless, but go pray at a school. Go pray for the schools. Go into the school and meet some kids and pray for them. No one can take that away from you. And so, at the end of the day, we're Jesus' people. And we have an incredible opportunity on Tuesday to engage and on Wednesday to respond in love. And that's what this world needs. And right now, don't think about what other people are going to do or not do. Right now, ask the question, God, what are you asking me to do? What are you asking me to not do? What are you asking me to stop doing? What are you asking me to start doing?
What does it look like to be obedient to the true king in a way that ultimately submits to him and points to the Lord, to Jesus? So I want to pray for us. I hope this is helpful. I encourage you to spend more time in the scripture this week than in the news. Or on social media. And let's let his word and his spirit shape and form us to respond in a biblical and godly way. Amen? All right, y'all stand with me and let's worship. Lord, we do. We stand as your children. And we know it's confusing and it's hurtful and there are things that we don't understand out there in the world. And at times it can feel hopeless. But Lord, even right now, will you minister to our hearts? Will you minister to those places of fear and remind us that you've given us a spirit of sonship? That you have called us your own and nothing can take that away. Lord, in our places of hurt or anger, Will you minister to our hearts? Will you heal our woundedness? That we can in turn offer that kind of healing and freedom and wholeness to others. God, may we be a people that lean in to those who are different than us or don't look like us or disagree with us. Or even as you said, to bless those who curse us, to bless our enemies to love our neighbors. Help us to be those kind of people, Lord. So church, even now, I would like for us to just simply pray the way that Jesus taught us to pray. If we could pray together the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. And give us today our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.